Um, so um, that's, we were just looking it up. They've, they've got a bu whole bunch of my talk. We, I've, they've recorded this series other years, so if you want to hear how I have done it before, <laughs> if you're really a masochist. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But it does change over time. Um, so that, and that's a great resource. I mean, there's thousands of talks and guided meditations on that site. All the uh, Theravadan and Vipassana teachers practically in the world that speak English are on there, and some that don't speak English. Um, and just a couple things that I'm up to. Uh, I'm going to be in L.A. on March 3rd for a day-long uh, retreat at the uh, Santa Monica Against the Stream Center. So if you know anybody down there or you're planning to be down there, uh, that'd be great. Fill it up. Um, usually I'm uh, usually every other week I'm at Yoga Kula on Wednesday nights in Berkeley. That's on Shattuck at Virginia in Berkeley. Um, again, on my website, there's some little postcards around here, kind of black. Wes Nisker and I trade weeks there. And that's a very beautiful space, beautiful yoga center. Um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to kind of build, build up the group there, so it would be great if you came to support that. Uh, it's really just a sitting, a regular kind of mindfulness Buddhist sitting group. It's not recovery oriented uh, specifically. Um, and I brought along, this is the mock-up of my CD cover, which you can't see probably from there, but I'm working on my CD and uh, this is, it's called Laughing Buddha and this is a Buddha on a bicycle. And he's got tattoos, he's a blue Buddha, which is kind of like Krishna or something. He's got tattoos, and uh, he's got a guitar. This is actually, she, she, she had this design with uh, something else under his arm, and so she got a picture of my guitar, so it looks exactly like my guitar. And he's got a little meditation bell on his handlebars to ring, and his, his begging bowl back here. And he's doing some kind of a, like a baya mudra with his left hand. It's a really beautiful image. Um, Hopefully that'll be out. I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter campaign, so if you want to be on that, you should, uh, if you want to, you know, participate in that, um, maybe sign up for my mailing list, which is also on my website. Ba-dum-ba-da-tsh! Is that so, music? That is music. It is music. It is not talking. It is music. I, uh, if you've read my books, you know that I uh, used to be a professional musician. Now I'm a former professional musician. <laughs> which uh, has not affected my playing as far as I know. I probably slowed down a little bit, but uh, yeah, I've written, uh, I mean, I've written many, many songs in my life, but uh, you know, of late, meaning in the last 10 or 15 years, I've kind of just written songs that have kind of Buddhist themes. Uh, they're not the typical Buddhist folky stuff. They're rock music, heavily rhythmic music, kind of African reggae, kind of Latin rhythms. Uh, and there's some that are very playful. A lot of them are very playful. I mean, Laughing Buddha itself is a pretty a playful song. There's not much to it in terms of meaning. <laughs> uh, but I'm not really one who looks for meaning that much in 
in lyrics. I was going to say in life, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but uh, just, but it's really it's joyful. It's really you know joyful music. Uh, and I, I hope to do some kind of a little benefit show out here uh, when Can we. Can we find you on YouTube yet? Or um, what's going on? You know, we're gonna. I'm gonna be making a video this weekend uh, to for the Kickstarter project. Uh, and of course, that'll be on YouTube, but uh, there won't be a lot of music on that. So we'll, once the CD comes out, I'll make a video of, of Laughing Buddha. That's my plan. Maybe some dance moves to go along with it? Yeah, maybe I'll get somebody to do some dance moves. Like my daughter is actually a really good dancer. Mark I was, Coleman, your daughter, whatever. Oh, yeah, is he a good dancer? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, you're always full of something. Max, <laughs> advice, yes. Okay, well, maybe you would uh, turn on the microphone now. Oh, jeez. You weren't supposed to be recording that. Oh, uh, did I? I don't get angry, though, because I'm a Buddhist. Um, so, um, I wanted to kind of round up some of the, uh, some of the thoughts about... Uh, higher power that we got into last week. Um, I, it, I usually find that when I teach this series that the step two, three week stretches out into the next week a little bit, and, uh, and that is certainly the case this time. And, uh, uh, I wanted to talk about um, a few different things, just read a couple of little pieces uh, from Burning Desire. I think the, for me, one of the interesting things is looking at what I call the higher power of wisdom. So in the Buddhist tradition, uh, the Buddha talks about three kind of gateways into awakening. Uh, the Seeing the truth of suffering and the truth of impermanence and the truth of selflessness or the lack of a solid self. And so I'll just read these, these short pieces and talk a little bit about them. So the higher power of suffering. So every, I, everything in this book I refer to as a higher power. Uh, so the higher power of suffering is the energy of craving and resistance that creates struggles in our world. So this is kind of how the Buddha defined suffering. What causes suffering? There are craving or even wanting things or pushing things away. Its power reveals the ways we need to change and inspires our efforts to overcome internal and external adversity. So this is somewhat self-evident that it's, it's through our struggles and through our suffering that we realize there's a problem that we need to deal with. This is, of course, why people go into recovery, because there's a problem. And it inspires us, right? It motivates us to change. Insight into suffering evokes the powers of acceptance, compassion, and forgiveness. So when, when we see our own suffering, 
and we see the inevitability of certain kinds of suffering, we have to cultivate acceptance around that. And when we realize that what we're going through is the same thing that everyone around us is going through, that, that everyone suffers, that inspires compassion. That's where compassion really comes from. Compassion is to feel with, you know, to, to, to have had the experience or to have an uh, empathic experience or um, empathic um, re kind of resonance with someone. And it, and it also, insight into suffering also uh, inspires forgiveness because we see that everybody struggles, that we're all imperfect, and that we're all doing our best. So to think of suffering as a higher power, I think, is a little bit counterintuitive because we think of it as the, th you know, there's sort of this idea, well, God is love, or God, you know, anything that's a higher power is, is like a, a good thing. It makes you feel good. But to me, anything that's powerful, that has a powerful effect on my life, is an aspect of what I would call God or higher power. It's something that I have to find a way of relating with in a skillful way. So much of, you know, for, for me, when I was caught in addiction, you know, there was this resistance to suffering, right? It was this lack of acceptance and this attempt to somehow make it go away, you know, stuff it away, get, smoke it away, drink it away. Um, and so there was never really a skillful dealing with it. But to see that, oh, the things that are blocking me in my life, I mean, we all sort of know this. Oh, that's the thing that I learned from. Oh, wow. You know, when we make a mistake, that's when we start to figure out what we're supposed to do. When everything's going great, you know, when you don't have problems in life, oh, that's nice, but you don't learn a whole lot. And, you know, it's the, the problem with, for instance, protecting children from any kind of problem or discomfort. You know, they get a bad grade and you go to the teacher, why, why did you give my student, my child a bad grade? Or anything that happens, you know, that you, you try to protect them from suffering, they grow up without any ability to actually live and function in the world because, you know, that mama's not going to be there, or daddy, you know, uh, when, when the problems arise. So, so learning to skillfully relate to suffering is a critical skill, and I think it's something that I didn't develop at all uh, until I got sober, really. So the next aspect of higher power, the higher power of impermanence. The higher power of impermanence is the energy of change that continuously transforms us and our world. Engaging this power helps us see through the illusion of solidity showing us the futility of clinging and the frailty of life. Now this is one of the kind of logical conclusions of the Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, that if everything is changing, obviously you can't hold on to it. And if you try to hold on to it, you're going to suffer. So this is why he said that clinging causes suffering. It uh, makes perfect sense when you understand impermanence. 
and it, but it also you know helps us to really appreciate life how frail each moment is how each breath is this precious moment uh, you know uh, present moment wonderful moment that it's just this just this just this there's nothing more um, and when we see our mortality to to realize that there's there's nothing to accumulate. There's nowhere to arrive. There's just this. And if I miss this, I'm missing everything. I'm missing life. Insight into impermanence inspires us to let go and deeply engage life as it is in each moment. And the, it's so ironic that the that you know, the, one of the kind of cliches of someone getting the terminal diagnosis, and then they talk about, well, I, every day is so precious to me now. We all have a terminal diagnosis. It's called life. You know, they all end the same way. I think it was Jim Morrison who said, no one here gets out alive. I know it was Jim Morrison who said that, actually. Why should I pretend that I think it? <laughs> so, this is one of the reasons that the Buddha recommended daily contemplation of impermanence, including impermanence of your life. Coming into harmony with that truth is very transforming. And it's very challenging to try to come into harmony with that because there's a natural tendency to kind of get depressed when you think about the fact that you're going to die. Most people avoid thinking about it. It's like, I don't want to think about that. Well, I agree, I don't either. But at least know it. Don't be surprised when it happens. Do your best to avoid it. When you get in the car, remember that this is one of the great causes of impermanence in people's lives, vehicles. um, That's probably, for most of us, the most dangerous thing that we do on a daily basis, get into a car. Every time I hear that report that there's a fatal accident on the 680 or something, I kind of kind of go, wow, they, I bet they thought they were going somewhere. You know? I bet they didn't think that today was the last day of their life. So it's a really good contemplation when you get in your car to think, hmm, maybe this will be the last time I, you know, maybe this will be the last day of my life. How do you do that? With, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is easy because sometimes it gets me depressed, I'll say, you know. So then I just I guess I do it anyway, I guess. All right, moving right along. Come to something happier, like not-self. Hmm. The higher power of not-self gives fluidity and flexibility to identity, allowing for the possibility of transformation. Uh-huh. So, most of the time when people hear this, oh, there's, not, there's no self. Well, what, you know, that's ter- You know, what am I, who am I, what am I? But we can think of it in a very positive way in that, what allows us to grow and to change, to get sober or to get into a program or to become enlightened or you know, anything, 
is the fact that there isn't some solid self. If there was just something that you were, you'd just, you know, you'd still have your best friend from kindergarten, you know, and, and you'd be, uh, it's, it's, obviously it's re very related to impermanence. It's one of the logical conclusions of impermanence. But it's a gift. Engaging this power helps us see through the illusion of separateness, the false identity of ego. So this is one of the key insights of Buddhism as well, our interconnectedness. Uh, I am you as you are me and you are, we are all together. See how they run like pigs from again. I don't know what that has to do with it. See how they sny. Yes. Anyway, so, you know, John, he started out, you know, and then he decided he had to be Bob Dylan or something. Insight into not-self breaks our habit of self-centeredness and guides us towards generosity, service, and compassion. This is obviously what step 12 is about. It's um, very much what the 12-step the programs are about. It's, it's about letting go of our self-centeredness and our selfishness and, and seeing how that causes us suffering. You know, one of the uh, things about this higher power of not-self is that we have to navigate our different selves. If we are really cling to a particular identity, we're going to suffer. You know, if I go home and start giving my 14-year-old a lecture on mindfulness, and because I'm a Buddhist teacher, we're both going to suffer, you know. <laughs> I'll probably suffer more than her because you know, it'll hurt my feelings when she slams the door in my face. You know, we, we all do this, actually. We move through our different identities, sometimes easily, sometimes not so easily. You, know, you go to work and you have a particular identity in, in relation to the other people there, the boss or, the, or your employees. You know, in your, in your intimate relationships, it's different. In your friendly relationships, it's different. You're, you're a different person. And, you know, you see people who get stuck in like, well, this is who I am, and they, they're not able to kind of let that down and just be not their, the person that they think they are. All, and, and I think, you know, celebrity is one of those traps, right? <laughs> because when, when you're like this image, and then you, you start to think you are that image. You see that. that that's, I think, why so many celebrities get into uh, various types of trouble. So uh, I, I just wanted to get into that little piece. There's, obviously, there's a lot more in this book and on that, and we talked about different things last week. But just to kind of clarify the, kind of how this, these, uh, some of these ideas work and some of the ones that I think are less obvious and less intuitive. Uh, but... It's, I think it is really helpful to see that there are these things that are very powerful that we have kind of relationships with uh, and, and be more conscious about that. I think we're all already kind of dealing with them, but when we can be really clear, oh, this is impermanence, or oh, that's the truth, you know, this is really painful, oh, this is, I'm clinging to something, just seeing that. 
you know, can really help us to respond more skillfully and, and maybe to uh, not stay stuck for as long with things. So, now, uh, you're, you know, you're uh, welcome to interrupt at any time if there's a question. But, uh, I have yeah. an observation, and, and that is it seems as though as you're talking about this, you're really talking about a lot of fourth step material. I know mm -hmm. that's the next place we're going with mm -hmm. it, but as I'm working with sponsees, I'm holding it invariably that how do you create suffering for self yeah. and other. That's really what we're doing in the fourth step. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff is along the lines of what you're talking about right, right now. Yeah, yeah, th that's right. And I think that the, what the next thing I was going to say is how I connect the third and fourth step. I think is very similar to what you're saying, which is that in the third step, we are making a decision to try to live differently and to try to live in harmony with these powers. And in the fourth step, we're kind of seeing all the ways that we haven't done that. <laughs> and uh, because if the third step, as I like to say, is if the third step worked the way it sounds like it does, literally, then it would be the last step. We would turn our will and our life over to the care of God, and then we'd be done. Why would we have to do anything else? And why, and why do we have to write this inventory now? Well, because it doesn't really work like that. We're making a decision to try to live in harmony with, uh, or in a more skillful manner, and we come up against all the resistance to that. You know, it's like the battleship has been traveling in one direction, and you've decided you want to turn it. Well, it takes a while to turn it. So in order to get to steps six and seven, which are, we can say are the kind of letting go of the things that, that keep us stuck, we have to first see what, what we're stuck on, what's, sticky, what's, what's making us be stuck. And so it's, um, in a sense, a karmic uh, deconstruction, a deconstruction of our karma, looking certainly uh, at how, we have created, how we've created ourselves and our identity, uh, but also uh, looking at our belief systems and... Uh, the the whole whole range of um, habitual behaviors and uh, thoughts and emotional patterns. So you know when I wrote my fourth step inventory many years ago, it was mostly just the story of all the ways I'd harmed people. But that was that to me is then a a uh, way of uh, w with that material, you can then start to kind of parse it out to see what each uh, uh, painful situation kind of represents, what aspect of you, and what, you know, I mean, the character defect isn't another phrase that I'm particularly fond of, but, you know, what issue that's kind of pointing to. So I think that the 12-step approach to inventory is really valuable. And it's not so much what I want to offer because, uh, you know, I think that's, that's available. And I think it that's something that people should work with. Uh, 
in that context. But that uh, what I'm interested in, in bringing to you is um, some thoughts about taking some Buddhist approaches to inventory, we could say, reflecting on um, our on who we are and our behaviors uh, through a couple of different lenses. And I'd, I'd say that maybe the most valuable one is the lens of the five hindrances. I think it kind of belongs here in step, step five, or step four. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I guess because I said the five hindrances. Okay, you're forgiven. Thank you. Um, so the, the five hindrances start with desire and aversion. And uh, desire and aversion are kind of the prime movers of addiction. And there's the desire for pleasure, and there's the aversion to feeling displeasure, unpleasant, something painful. And those are the two kind of main motivators for using and acting out addictively. Um, they're also, actually, there's one model that comes out of some of the, uh, the Buddhist commentarial writing. So it's post, it's not, doesn't come from the Buddha, but it comes from a couple thousand years ago. That talks about different personality types. And that there's a desire type, and there's an aversion type, and there's a delusion type. And, you know, th these are the type of things that are, you know, they're like Cosmo magazine question <laughs> things, right? You know, not to, uh, it could also be GQ, so I don't want to see, sound sexist or anything, because God knows I'm not. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I mean, not, you know, intentionally, just accidentally. Um, so the desire type, let's say, comes into a room, let's say into a party, and says, hey, who can I meet here? Well, this looks really, this, where, you know, wh where's the fun? Who are the cool people? And the, the aversing type comes in and goes, I don't know about these people. They kind of look lame. I don't know. I don't like the way they're dressed. You know, they're, ugh. And the, the delusive type comes in and goes, uh, Am I in the right place? Where, where am I? Is this the right party? So you may recognize yourself in one of those types. Of course, we're all mixtures of types. We're no, nobody's 100% any type. I am the aversive type, absolutely. Um, which, and each of those, these, of course, has a positive quality. The desire type is really someone who tends to embrace life. My daughter is a desire type. Her, her thing is... I'm really excited about that, and whatever, and, and no matter what she's just done, she, you know, we're done with Disneyland or whatever, I'm really excited about the next thing. She's always really excited, um, which is great. You know, it's a wonderful quality. The aversive type, the good thing about the aversive type is that they have a critical intelligence, you know, because the desire type can be like, ah, it's all really great, and it's like, you know, <laughs> there are some problems with this. So whenever I'm on like a like a board or some, you know, organization that's sort of forming or putting things together. I'm always the one who kind of goes, you know, this is good, but there's this problem. Oh, right, thank you. So there's a critical intelligence that's valuable. 
the delusive type, I'm trying to remember what the good thing about the, uh, the delusive type are kind of easygoing. You know, nothing really bothers them because they, they don't know where they are. It's like, this is okay, I'm here, wherever I am, it's, but, uh, no worries. But this can be part of kind of your inventory in a way, is kind of analyzing yourself in these ways to see, okay, what are my tendencies? Because this is what, what uh, a lot of that, what we're trying to see is, what are my habitual ways of being? How do I tend to react to the world? Because partly what I'm trying to do is deconstruct myself and see, oh, I'm just made up of these reactive components. And if I'm mindful, I can make a choice whether I'm going to react or I'm going to go, oh, that's just my aversive self. I'm going to go to the party anyway, or I'm going to go introduce myself to someone anyway. You know, so what if they've got the wrong shoes on? You know, I'll forgive them and just like move, I'll try to move past that. You know what I mean. So, um, so we can look at our patterns of desire, you know, kind of look at, uh, and as you're meditating, and we were doing this last week, I think, I was teaching that about watching, noticing when there's desire, thoughts of desire, noticing when there's thoughts of aversion. So starting to see that, see how much you're driven by these things, so that, again, you can make a choice. It's not that you should never act on a desire, but when desires are harming you or harming others, to be able to make a choice about it, to be, make a conscious choice. Oh, like, I really want to do this. I really want to steal that necklace, but yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. Or I really want to have a drink, or that pot really smells good, you know, which it usually does. Um, that you're, there's some separation between the energy and the experience. So uh, there's, uh, there's um, a classical antidote to the hindrances. Uh, and one of the things that's a, an antidote to each of the hindrances is mindfulness uh, to, that allows us to not get caught up. We experience it. So this is why, again, with mindfulness, we, the first thing we do with our experiences is we try to just be with them and accept this is what it is and investigate them, see it. Oh, this is the nature of this. Feel it in the body. Notice the thoughts the emotions that come with it, and just to be able to, oh, that's, uh, this is right away changing our relationship to it. Right? So our normal relationship to desire is to act on desire. And the illusion of desire is that if I get this thing or I have this experience, that then I'll be okay. Then I'll be satisfied. I just, you know, when you're unemployed, it's the, you know how that, there can be that obsession. If I just had a job, like you get to a point where it's like, I just, if I just had a job, I'd be okay, you know. You know, finally you get the job, and it's like, great. And then the next morning, you, the alarm goes off, and you go, ah, oh, shit, I got to go to work now, you know. <laughs> and you realize <laughs> that it's just, you know, it's, you're never there. Yeah. It's just the same as with our drinking and using. Jeez, you know, if I, just that one more drink, you know. Oops. <laughs> no, I need another one. Oh. If I just could get into a relationship. Oh. 
And then six months later, it's like, how do I get rid of this person? You know? <laughs> I, mean, it's just, I mean, maybe not six months, I don't know. But, you know, everything is impermanent, right? That's the problem. So desire is a liar. It's my little couplet there for you to remember. And aversion works the same way. If I could just get rid of this, then I'll be okay. You know, if he would just ring the bell you know, and end this meditation, then you know, I'll be okay. Or you know how it is when you're sick. Oh, God. If I could just get well. you know, and Then you get well and you're just like, oh, this is great for five minutes. And then it's like some other problem. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great practice like the, the no toothache practice. Remind yourself, I don't have a toothache. This is great. (laughs) Yes? How does fear fit into this? You're scaring me. I don't know. (laughs) How does fear fit into it? Fear is a form of aversion. Aha. I'm scared. I want to get away from it. It's frightening me. It's aversion. What more do you want to know? Or, judgment. Yeah, judgmental or hatred, yes. Yeah. Right. That's typically how we talk about aversion, but there are many, many forms of aversion. And, and yeah, fear is such a common uh, yeah. denominator in the way we behave. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. What's the best way to handle this? <laughs> Darn. I think it's, we're almost, well, we have 30 minutes. We can, <laughs> uh, walk through it. I don't know. You know, it really depends on the fear, I think. Um, let's be more specific. How do you handle fear? Well, so, but ask, talk about a specific fear, something, because it's too vague for me to get a hold of. Okay, the major fear of losing your job. Yeah. Well, that's more than fear. It's also something, I don't, it's not greed, but what? Yeah. Um, you know, the, first of all, <laughs> this practice isn't about making things different, you know about even about getting rid of fear. You know, that may be the end result of working with it, but mindfulness practice is about being with. And of course, fear is unpleasant. And so naturally, we want to get rid of it. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to feel it. But the principle of mindfulness is we have to experience something Clearly, that's, that, that's the starting point. There's, there's potential for change, but until we see it clearly and know it clearly, we, we can't change it because I mean, it's not that it can't. I mean, it, everything's going to change, but I mean, what I mean is that if we're, in, if we're not in a relationship of acceptance, then we're in a relationship of either aversion or, or desire, you know. So, does that make sense? 
So if you're in a relationship of aversion or desire, you're creating suffering <laughs> around it. So it's like, I've got fear. How can I deal with it? Meaning, how can I get rid of it? You're right away, you're in this battle. And that's not the way the heart-mind works. I'm going to, I'm depressed. How can I get, you know, how can I get rid of it? Uh, no. Other than, you know, psychopharmaceutical approaches, you know, I mean, Xanax works well with fear, I understand. But, but with uh, mindfulness is to come into my body, feel fear. First of all, start, feel that, go, okay, that's what this feels like. And now I'm going to breathe. And I'm going to see how much of fear is actually, actually in the body. It's visceral. And that if I can calm my body, and I can come into calm abiding, that that's one way that fear subsides. Now, you're talking about something mental as well. It's interesting that I remember James Barrows talking about fear and saying, fear is based on the past. And I always thought, no, wait, I thought fear was about the future. But what he's saying is that, you know, we're afraid that the same thing, you know, some memory of how things were is going to repeat. Um, so we, have to, uh, we start to see what our mind is doing. You know, what are, uh, what's my thought? My thought is I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. Why do I think that? Well, my boss looked at me cross-eyed. Okay. How do I know that that's what that means? Well, I don't, but I, it could. Well, yeah, but it might just mean that she got up on the wrong side of bed, the bed today. You know, so we started, this is kind of the cognitive approach, right? We kind of deconstruct the thought and kind of see, oh, is there some basis for this? And, you know, if there's some basis, then there's, okay, yeah, jobs are impermanent. What, you know, am I going to die if I lose my job? Probably not. You know. The, you know, to me, you have to just bring in this kind of realism because fear is fundamentally based in the what I don't know, right? And so what I like to think about is what do I know? I know that there's a thing called unemployment insurance. I know that, you know, I have, I'm fortunate I have a partner. So when I lost my job five years ago, I got unemployment insurance, and my partner said, no, it wasn't, well, actually, the first time I lost my job, 2002, she said, why don't you write your book proposal and use this as a sabbatical? That was a shock, because I was like, I've got to get a job. No. And then I wrote a book proposal, and as they say, <laughs> the rest is history. But so, you know, Losing a job can be great, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know. It's just, it's just we're pro there's so much projection. So it's, again, just to see what is real. You know, there's the possibility of not having a job. Yeah, there's a possibility of getting hit by a bus walking across the street. So if we live in that, again, we're missing life. Yes? Doubt is the most dangerous. 
Uh huh. You also mentioned in that book, uh, what is the difference between doubt and great doubt? Uh huh. So you, that's what you, that's the question. The, se- the second part. Oh, okay. Why is doubt the worst hindrance? Yeah. Right. So they say that I, you know, that's that comes out of the Buddhist teachings. I didn't make up that idea, and the, because it's the thing that will take you right out of, it'll take you off the path, and so for somebody in recovery. It's the most dangerous hindrance because it's the one that says, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, you know, and so which means I should drink because I'm not an alcoholic. Never quite understood that, the logic of that. But so the doubt, that's why doubt is so dangerous because it's like, oh, this class of spirit rock, it's a waste of time. You know, the program, that's a waste of, you know, I, I don't believe in that stuff. You know, I'm going to go to the Sufi dancing. I don't know why I always pick on Sufi dancing, but... <laughs> It's actually really great. So great doubt, it comes out of a Zen, uh, a Zen teaching, which is, uh, f- the way I understand it is, it's like you, you never know what's going to happen next. And if you have this, they talk about don't know mind. Don't know mind kind of goes with great doubt. Um, that you never know what's going to happen next, so pay attention. Because what we normally do is we live our lives like, oh yeah, I know, I'm at the 9 o'clock, the class will be over, and then I'll drive home, and I've got that show on my VCR or, or DVD or DVR or whatever initials we have, and then uh, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, go to work, blah, blah, blah. And so we sleepwalk through our lives because we, we know everything. Right? Oh yeah, I've been to Spirit Rock. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, wait, here I am. Huh, what's that thing hanging from the ceiling? You know, oh, oh, I never really looked at that tanka. You know, it's, it's be awake. What's happening? What, how, how do I know what's going to happen? What if Kevin decides to walk out in the middle of the class? I don't know. You know we don't know what's going to happen. What if Kevin has a heart attack? Who's going to take over for him? Max, of course. So, but anyway. <laughs> He'll probably have a bike accident on the way. So, so that's great doubt. It's that kind of, don't, I don't know. I don't know. What do I know? What do I really know? Not much. I know in and out. Great as in like a positive? Yes. Okay. But, but it, it's great actually in just very large. <laughs> it's like, whoa, the universe, you know, what do I know about it, you know? Um, there's, a, there's a book, Stephen Batchelor's, I think his first book was called The Faith to Doubt. And it's kind of about, it's somewhat about that concept. Because uh, he, he studied in that Korean Zen tradition, which, which is where that teaching comes from. Um, yeah, good, good question. Um, so let me talk a little bit more about the hindrances. Um, <laughs> um, the well, uh, actually, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the the antidotes to desire and aversion. Like, there's a classical uh, antidote to sexual lust, which has to do with kind of imagining the unpleasant uh, 
unattractive aspects of the human body, which always goes over really big in, in spirit rock classes when I talk about it. So, but, but I was, I, I've thought about how that relates to addiction, that, that um, one of the ways that, that we um, work through when the craving to relapse arises is that we think about how horrible it is you know, we think through the drink, they say. You know, you think about the results. You think about how disgusting it is when you're drunk, you know. Uh, you know, when, when you wake up with a hangover. All the things that you do when you're loaded, you know, the unskillful. I mean, as I say, you know, when I break the fifth precept, which is to not use intoxicants, I break all the other ones, which are like to not lie, to not harm with my sexuality, to not steal, to not you know, kill. I mean, I haven't killed any humans, but... Um, as far as I know, uh, but you know, it—it's it, kind of you think through it. So that's kind of the a, a great antidote to the desire. It's like, yeah, I really want to do this, but yeah, you know, do I really want to do this? Uh, is it really? So that's a—that's one of the antidotes. Um, and the, you know, the antidote to aversion, kind of the flip of that. It's like, I really hate that son of a bitch. Oh God, you know what? Can I send them love? You know, can I can I think positive things? I, I did this for someone. You know, I was a few years ago. I was with my literary agent, who's a, actually a, in recovery and and a practicing Buddhist. And uh, now I've sort of broken her anonymity, but she wouldn't mind. Um, and I was talking about uh, somebody that. I, I was, you know, somebody who had published a book that I felt like, well, you know, I don't know that work, I don't really got lash. And she was like, hmm, sounds like you kind of have a, like a resentment. Maybe you should pr pray for that person. I was like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, we should do loving kindness for them. So I did, for a year, I did loving kindness every, every day for this person. And, you know, I, I largely got over, I mean, you know, progress, not perfection. But, I mean, it really, really had a, Tremendous effect, and of course, this is that they say in the twelve steps as well. Pray for your enemies, you know, and uh, so that's a great antidote to aversion. Um, so the, the the third and fourth hindrances then go together to restlessness and sleepiness, and these are more energetic. They're also very much wrapped up with our addiction. You know, restlessness, that agitation, irritable restlessness and discontent, you know, that I, I got to go out and I got to, uh, you know, I got to party, you know. I don't know, you know, by the time I stopped drinking, I hadn't partied in a long, long time, you know. It was not a party. It was more like drudgery. But that, that I, I can just remember that feeling in my body that I had to get drunk. And it wasn't every time I drank, but there were some times, you know, regularly, when there would be this compulsion. And it was very much visceral. And I can really identify it as restlessness and, and, and in, a, in a kind of very intense form. And, and restlessness is also anxiety. So fear also appears in this, in this hindrance. Um, so again, the practice of meditation obviously is so vital for this, that calm abiding. Um, 
and, and that's the traditional antidote is concentration. It's also in meditation when there's restlessness. And I often kind of go the opposite of trying to unify my mind, which is kind of the concentrated approach, and actually try to open my mind. So the idea that I want to give myself space, because restlessness is also a form, it feels a little claustrophobic. And so if I can realize that my mind is actually vast, the way I do that is that I start to listen to sounds. There's a good th- you can try doing it outside, especially when there are sounds coming from a distance. So when you're listening to sounds from a distance, then you, if you tune into the space of your mind, and I, it's hard for me to use any other terms, but th- that there's a spatial quality to your consciousness, and you tune into that, then there's a, sp- a sense of your mind being much larger than the typical way of feeling like here I am and you know I'm kind of operating from this these my eyes and my head and just kind of oh my mind is much bigger than that and that kind of lets all that energy that restless energy go out into space there's also suggestions about processing it uh, uh, into the earth so some teachers will suggest, you know, have a f- uh, sense of like working energy down, down, down your body into the earth and channeling it out through your toes into the earth. Um, but I think, it, uh, again, we need to bring mindfulness to this and see, oh, that's what's going on. You know, it uh, always strikes me as interesting that the, sometimes the worst traffic is <laughs> on the freeways is on the weekends. And it's kind of like, it's very American in a way. You know, that, that kind of old thing of, and on the weekend, let's go for a drive in the country, kind of, you know. And now it's just like, it's just, we'll go to the mall, right? But let's get stuck in traffic with everybody because it's like restlessness, like let's go somewhere, you know, let's just do something. I mean, I can remember just getting on the road when I was 19, I'd just throw out a backpack and just jump out and stick your thumb out and go, you know. Uh, so, restlessness. And the flip side of that, sloth and torpor. <laughs> so there's, but with both of these hindrances, there's a mental component and, an, and a physical component. The mental component of anxiety and worry, when the thoughts just spin. And then in sloth and torpor, it's when the mind gets very dull and cloudy, kind of sinking mind that I talked <coughs> about before. And the physical aspect of just fatigue and heaviness this is also a trigger for addiction. You know, alcohol masks fatigue. Many, and then there's a lot of drugs that are stimulants. And, you know, it's like Friday night, what do people do? You know, even normal people. And they get off work after a long week at work, they're exhausted, and they go to the bar, you know, TGIF. Let's drink to stimulate and to, to suppress the fatigue. Um, so it can really trigger those desires. And fatigue also, because it kind of lowers our um, resistance, our emotional resistance, our mental resistance, it allows kind of the cravings to come up. It's a very common time for uh, food, I won't say food addicts, but people with eating disorders to binge is when they're, when they're tired. Uh, you know, the other, the other night I was, I don't, 
I guess I was asleep and I woke up and I must have fallen asleep before my wife because she was still reading. And I just, I, I was kind of stuck under the covers, you know, a little wrapped up and I like very slowly pulled myself out and like dragged myself, went to the kitchen. My wife was like, Kevin, are, are you awake? <laughs> she was, thought I was walking my sleep. I went, I was like, I need some crackers. <laughs> It's just like that, I had this salt craving that sometimes happens. But I just know how, you know, your tire's like, you know, oh, whoop, what happened to that bag of Oreos? <laughs> so again, to bring mindfulness to it, um, you know, and of course all the things that can happen emotionally when you're, you get irritable and you're tired, and, and to see, oh, I'm, just to know, oh, I'm tired, rather than, Oh, I'm pissed off, or I'm hungry, or I got it. You know, it's like, no. Oh, what's a skillful response to tiredness? Oh yeah, rest. You know, we we just kind of don't do it enough. You know, uh, that article I think I mentioned it that was in the Times last weekend before last about uh, how people should take more naps. You know, that they'll be more productive if they work less. You'll be more productive, and I've always found that to be true. No, I mean that. That you know, there's a few hours of productive energy in each day, and the rest of the time you kind of do your make work stuff or your kind of you know your little data entry type stuff and emails. But if you want to do really creative, intensive work, there's only a few hours that you're gonna gonna be able to do that. And uh, this idea that oh we're gonna work 60 hours a week and really get a lot done, yeah, you're gonna like make a lot of mistakes. It's gonna be really sloppy. I mean, it's. Um, there's classical antidotes to, to sleepiness in, in meditation. There's sitting up straighter, taking some deep breaths, opening the eyes. Uh, you know, so, so if you're really trying to uh, stay awake through your, through your practice um, in your meditation, so do some of these things. That, also, the one, my favorite one is pulling your earlobes. No, it's some kind of a, you know, pressure point, I guess. Ow, that kind of hurt, actually. Um, and then there's doubt. And we've talked some about doubt and the danger of doubt. I want to mention, finally, that one of the antidotes to all five hindrances, and this comes out of a commentary as well, it's called uh, it's Noble Friends and Noble Conversation. Yeah, sponsors, meetings, you know, you know, not isolating. And I think it's so interesting that this comes out of Buddhist teachings that, particularly in the West, we think of Buddhism as like all about, like, I'm supposed to go and sit on the mountaintop. I'm supposed to, silence, that's the really spiritual thing, to be silent. And I mean, I can remember, you know, when I first went to AA, and I had a background in Buddhism, I was like, well, you know, this is pretty good, but these people, are, they're awfully noisy, you know. They, they really ought to quiet down a little bit if they want to be spiritual. I mean, it's all well and good, but, you know. And, and seeing that spirituality is much more than sitting with, silently with your eyes closed. Yeah, there's a value in that, but uh, that can be used as an escape. I've known plenty of people who used retreats as a drug or as an escape. 
It's like, you know, the kids are really noisy. Ah, I'm going to go meditate. You know, oh, well, that's, you know, is that really helpful? Um, But remember that it's noble friends, noble conversation, not just, you know, anybody. So from a meditative approach to the steps, we can think of our practice as containing a certain element of ongoing inventory. And this is one of the models for taking that inventory. What's arising in this moment? Which of the hindrances is arising? And if none of them are arising, then calm abiding will be there. That's the natural result that the Buddha talked about. That when the hindrances pass away, then we, that's when the peace arises. This is one of the reasons why the, the model of, of a human, say, or of the mind in Buddhism is that our true nature, which is a ter- you know more of a Mahayana concept, but uh, th- that who we really are is actually pure. That there's that there's a uh, it that the what you call character defects or uh, are uh, unskillful thoughts and behaviors that. When those are removed, what's left is this pure, bright, awakened being. And so it's not that we're practicing in order to acquire anything. And how could we be doing a practice that says letting go is the way to freedom by acquiring something? We're not acquiring anything. Calm abiding is your birthright. It's within you. It's just obscured by the hindrances, if you will. There's other ways to characterize them. But, so our work is not to you know, bring something in, but it's just to continually let go, let go. And letting go starts by seeing clearly <laughs> what is happening. We can't let go of something until we see it clearly. And the power of mindfulness is that just observing itself very often allows something to be let go. Uh, But then there are these kind of specific tools to engage. Uh, It's very important to use these antidotes, though, skillfully. If we use them with a hammer, if we use them in an aversive way, well, we're already bringing in a hindrance. This is the tricky little dance that we're doing here. Or if I really want that calm abiding that Kevin talked about, already I'm caught up in one of the hindrances of wanting. So we're trying to first start to just be. That's why there's so much emphasis on just be, just be mindful, just watch what's happening. And so many of the questions that arise out of a class like this so often are about, well, how can I change this? How can I make this 
be more the way I want it to be or the way you're talking about it? That's already the wrong question because already you're trying to control. wondering, because we talk in Buddhism about everybody can be enlightened, that it's attainable. What I wonder is how much calm abiding you experience. How much I experience? Yeah, do you experience it at, at intervals? You know how we talk of about course. when are you serene? Well, from time to time. <laughs> Certainly, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, there are different models of enlightenment. And, and to, to, to get one view on this that I think is quite, uh, just makes it a little easier to think about. Jack Cornfield has an essay. It was published in Inquiring Mind. It's in his book that I'm sure is in there called something like Bringing the Light of Wisdom like that. It's published by Sounds True, and it's called Enlightenments. And he talks about all the different Buddhist traditions and how they define enlightenment in all these different ways. And that really there isn't one form of enlightenment. So um, it's not that helpful to, um, you know, get too wrapped up in that. If you are going to if that's your, you know, if you really have a hunger for that, then you, you know, you, you kind of get committed to one path, you know, choose, choose something that really works for you. So, I mean, I work in the Theravadan tradition, and so the, you know, there's a very specific description of what the first stage, there's four stages of enlightenment, there's a very descriptive, very specific description of the first stage and what it takes to get there. And, all that stuff, and uh, you know, and then you start to do that work. Obviously, there's no time frame. That you know, some people wake up quicker than others. You know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. You know. Ultimately, I think the important thing is to be committed to the path, and tr you know, again, it's turning it over. You know, it's it's. It's, and it's realizing that the fullness of life is right here. That, you know, I, I love that Zen expression, now that I'm enlightened, I'm as miserable as ever. You know? <laughs> so, great, you know. I mean, what's going to change? What, you know, it's just a viewpoint. But, it, you know, we, I, I know I have always had the idea, of, or I certainly had the idea of some bliss state that I was going to stay in. That's not how I understand it anymore. So this says 8.59. So I'm going to close um, with a little loving-kindness practice. And I, I hope you got the homework, and uh, I hope it's self-explanatory. <coughs> Once again, we've had the opportunity to Spend time with noble friends in noble conversation. Now we just take a moment of gratitude. We are very fortunate that there is this place. It's 
Spirit Rock, that there are these teachings that have come to us in the West from thousands of miles and thousands of years. We are very fortunate to have others to share this path with. May all beings have the benefit of these teachings and the benefit of companions on this path. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much, and I will see you next week, and uh, enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.